0: Okay, let's start. Um, Just a note on something on my mind in the prayers. Um, I've not, I've quoted Flannery O'Connor a couple of times in our time together, and wonderful Catholic modern American writer, for those of you who don't know, short story writer basically. Very Catholic and um, hard minded in her Catholicism. She loved Faulkner. Um, recognized how much greater a writer he was, just a uh, uh, she wrote a book called Mystery and Manners, in which she um, addresses the problems of being a fictional writer, how to write fiction. it's It's an extraordinary collection of 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 a great writer's thoughts on the act of writing, the art of writing. for those of you who want to read something, it's called Mystery and Manners. In one of her essays she she makes this comment that unless we learn to identify with every character, we're not reading well, and I want to say that tonight in light of my prayer. Um, because so often when we read great literature, we like to identify with the heroes and the heroines. When we read Shakespeare, if we don't identify with Iago, say take Othello, if we don't identify with Iago and learn to see something about ourselves from looking at him, then, then I would question the way that we're reading. I, I, i made this statement before, literature is a mirror of ourselves. It, it reveals us to ourselves. If we only look at the good and skip the bad, then we're not reading well. Because one, one of the gifts to us is that we learn to see ourselves good and bad from the literature. That, that's why in my mind, literature is in some ways violent. I mean, it, it, it breaks, should, could break through our boundaries to, to reach depths Um, so just with that in mind okay in the name of the father son holy spirit thank you again lord for the gift of this day and for your presence with us i ask a blessing on all of us um, that we give ourselves to what we learn to learn to see the great graces at work in nature particularly because they're so hidden today and also to see um, those things in ourselves as humans that are not good. Um, um, strengthen us in our hope um, to not be afraid, uh, to pick ourselves up when we sin, to look at our sins, um, and always turn to you knowing that your mercy is greater than anything we can do. Um, I ask a blessing on all of us and all that we do through this week. Um, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. <coughs> okay, um, John Donne. Um, I hadn't thought about this until I pulled it out, this out, and then I, I didn't. It didn't even come to me until halfway through my reading. Um, for those of you who might be interested in f- looking more closely, more deeply into the lyric, because it's not our focus. Louise Cowans is editor of a four-volume work on the four genres, epic, tragedy, comedy, lyric. The lyric was the last one that she did. It's a wonderful collection, and there's um, an essay in here on Dunn written by somebody you know. So you might be interested in looking at this Uh book Um, um, and looking at that essay on Dunn. um, I think it's good, but some of you may not. Anyway, it's called The Prospect of Lyric, it's edited by Baynard and Louise Cowan and the essay on Dunn is one, Lu- Louise's introduction is really fine, it's a, it's a beautiful, she's an extraordinary teacher, and her essay on uh, Keats is really fine too, so if you're interested in looking more deeply into the Lyric, just to follow up what we've been doing, it's a really good text. Probably one of the best texts out on the lyric ever. Is um, it the prophecy of lyric? Sorry? Is it the prospect of lyric? Oh, pro- prospect. Should I pass this around? I'm sorry, yeah, my eyes aren't <laughs> Oh, OK, that's the lot. OK. Um, <laughs> um, I'm going to read two poems of Dunn, and then we're going to have to fly through Virgil tonight. but. The first poem, Holy Sonnet 14, is taken from a collection of Dunn's poems called Holy Sonnets. They're all um, dealing with explicit um, religious topics. The sonnet here is an adaptation of the Shakespearean Shakespearean sonnet form. It, It consists of three quatrains, rhyming quatrains, groups of four lines. For any of you, don't know? So, four lines is a quatrain, and they rhyme. Um, so there are three quatrains, and the last one fades into a concluding cutlet. The first quatrain is an image of a blacksmith, like God as a, as a creator of, what's that, uh, making a vessel, you know, creating vessels like a potter. Is one of the major images we get in the Psalms and Old the Testament. The second quatrain, the middle quatrain, is an image of a, a town under attack. And the last quatrain um, is presented in terms of a marriage. So from three very different perspectives, he um, he is addressing God from three different aspects um, and asking him to intervene because of the struggles he's having with his own sins, okay? The nocturnal is an elegy, it's a lament. Um, we're not sure who the person is. There's some arguments. Some people think um, it's, a, it's an elegy on um, a countess that he loved very much, whose name was Lucy. It may be his wife um, on the day that she died. Um, his, um, it may be his daughter, whose name was Lucy, we're not sure. I'm not even sure that it's important, but it's an elegy and I don't, I do not want to go into the the, the, the peculiarities of Dunn's vision of the cosmos, which has changed so much since our time. Um, so just, if, if, if you can follow the, my practice of just hearing it and letting it go, because I don't want to comment on it. There's too much in here that's, that, that really needs talking, we can't do it, so um, get what you can out of it and appreciate the, the change in feeling because the, the, the poems are very very different in mood and feeling, particularly the elegy. In the elegy he keeps referring to himself as the, the nothing of nothing. He's talking about the, the loss of a loved one and it's left him in a state of such desolation that he almost can find no terms on the other side of nothing. It's almost like he's his creation has been undone, and you'll hear it as we go through it. Um, all, the, all the sense of absolute loss, um, which paradoxically would make it impossible for him to write the poem, but that's the state he feels he's in. Okay. Holy Son of 14, batter my heart, three person gone. Remember, three quatrains. The first one's like a blacksmith, a, p- a potter maker, Um, a town under attack, and a marriage. (coughs) So, three different aspects of the turmoil of his soul while he's asking for God's help. Batter my heart, we person God, for you as yet but not, re break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like a usurped town to another do, labor to admit you, but owe to no end. Reason, your viceroy and me, should I defend, but is captive and proves weak or untrue. Yet dearly I love you, and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. To attach to Satan, he can't give up his sins. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again, take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. <coughs> Nocturnal upon St. Lucy's Day. Tis the year's midnight, and it is the day's, Lucy's, who scarce seven hours herself unmasks. The sun is spent and now his flasks send forth light squibs, no constant rays. The world's whole sap is sunk. The general bomb a dropping earth has drunk, withered as to the bed's feet life has shrunk, dead and interred. Yet all these seem to laugh compared with me, who am their epitaph. Study me then, you who shall lovers be at the next world, that is, at the next spring. For I am every dead thing in whom love wrought new alchemy. For his art did express a contrescence even from nothingness, from all thy dull privations and lean emptiness. He ruined me, and I am revogat of absence, darkness, death, things which are not others from all things draw all that's good, life, soul, form, spirit, whence they being have. I by love's limbic am the grave of all that's nothing. Off a flood have we too wept and so drowned the whole world, us too. oft did we grow to be two chaoses when we did show care to aught else and often absences withdrew our souls and made us carcasses. But I am by her death, which word wrongs her, of the first nothing, the elixir grown. or I a man, that I were one, I needs must know. I should prefer, if I were any beast, some end, some means. Yea, plants, yea, stones, to test and love, all awesome properties invest. If I an ordinary nothing as there's a shadow, a light, and body must be here. But I am none, nor will my sun renew. You lovers for whose sake the lesser sun at this time to the goat has run to fetch new lust and give it you, enjoy your summer all, since she enjoys her long night's festival. Let me prepare towards her, and let me call this hour her vigil and her eve, Sent this both, the years and the days, deep midnight is. That's how it begins, if you remember the opening lines. I'm going to read uh, two of the remaining poems next week. I, for sure, I'm going to be write, reading Good Friday. Um, we're approaching Lent, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an appropriate poem, and one of the others. Okay, too much to do. Just very quickly, um, we've been talking a lot about the importance of the theme of transformation or what we can call the translating the past, the struggle of carrying our past forward and not getting caught in it, Um, not duplicating it, somehow recreating it, and the problem that that presents to the poet in what he does with words Because he has to find, in words, a means of bringing something new into being. And in that sense, the the ordeal that he faces is exactly like Aeneas's. It's the challenge that Aeneas faces. And we've seen so far how Virgil has changed both of the crucial Greek notions that are the themes of, of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And we've got to think about this, I think, pretty deeply. Remember, kleos for the Greek world meant honor, and, and honor, as it's understood, undergoes a transformation in Homer. All of the men um, who've been involved in this war for almost 10 years look at honor as, in terms of material booty, the human worth is in terms of today what we would call salary, image, power, a job. It's exactly what defines our world today. And nostos is homecoming, but in homecoming, it didn't mean going home to a place, particularly. It meant reordering the soul, um, learning to know the, the proper, the, na- the real nature of the soul, so that when he returns home, he, he can bring order to his house. Because how is anybody going to bring order to their home and their family if they don't understand these things? They'll be caught in the chaos that that constitutes family life for most of us. What we saw is that both of these notions have undergone <coughs> a tremendous transformation. What we see in Virgil is that kleos is no longer individual honor. In in Virgil's mind, the Greeks were too individualistic; they lived too much for themselves. Kleos, in Virgil's word, means in his world means. Um, submission to the gods, um, a giving up of oneself, um, trusting in the gods, um, constantly seeking them out, what their will is, um, and looking out for others because whatever his will is, it involves others more than himself. So, so Aeneas is constantly looking out for his men. We've, we've been noticing the differences all along in what Virgil's doing with Aeneas as a hero. So, Kleos is no longer individual honor. It, it, whatever meaning honor has, it's much more inclusive. Um, it involves um, a man's relationship to the gods, his willingness to serve them, um, denying himself, constantly picking up. There's no glory ever for Aeneas. Um, I, I don't think there is for Achilles in any recognizable way. He's got all that booty at the end, and he's left there. but. Um, we, we know that with Aeneas, um, um, from one episode to the next, um, he is constantly having to suffer defeat, loss. Um, he has to give up his past, um, everything that he loves, and, and continue on. So no matter how bad things get, he has to go on. So one of the differences between, let's say, Achilles and Aeneas, is that Aeneas is more, and this is true of the, of the difference between the Greek and Roman world, the, the, the Roman and Greek world. Whatever goes on with Aeneas is far more embedded and subject to time. Times. Gerard Manley Hopkins uses the, the phrase times tasking. He's worn down. Effort after effort to found a city, he has to keep going. He cannot let the failures stop him. We talked about that when we looked at the, at the panel in the Trojan Wars uh, depicted there and, and try to imagine what Virgil must have had going through his mind as he presented his hero like that. Does Aeneas even know himself the, the man that he's um, shown to be on that in that mural is not close to the man that he is now because for seven years he's just failed again and again. It's interesting I've been thinking about it. I would like to call Aeneas the working man's hero. Um, the working man's hero I really believe that I mean he's so Catholic, so Roman. Stop and think about this just for a second. Just This is an interesting graphic. The Iliad and the Odyssey, you know that they're inverted. The, in the Aeneid, it's the, the Odyssey and then the Iliad when he gets to, um, to Italy. Um, while Odysseus is spending nine of his nine and a half years with women and eight of those years under calypso's spell, and, I, and I, I hate to demean him like this, but we're in the Iliad world now. I can't talk about it. You know how much I admire those two Greek heroes. Um, Odysseus is learning something about metaphysical realities, the archetypes, the feminine archetypes. Those are nymphs. Um, it's not, they're, they're dimensions of reality in women, as Homer presents them. While Odysseus is with Calypso for eight of those years crying because he wants to get home. Aeneas is busy founding cities and failing, so he really is like a working man's hero. He he, he cannot stop. Um, the, he he takes the, the year off with Dido. I mean, he he really is entranced, captivated by Divido, by Di, Dido and and succumbs. He gives in. I mean, and we saw that scene where he saw the walls going up and the sense of relief that he that he wanted a break from his labors. So um, he stays there and it's clear that he would have stayed there longer if Mercury had not come and said, what are you doing, get on. So it's a very different kind of kleos, a very different kind of honor. The the notion of nostos is radically changed. Because for Odysseus, nostos meant going home, but it meant bringing all that he'd learned to a home that was already there, He's returning to his wife. For Aeneas that's not so. The the term nostos means always something more. Just when you think you have a home, it's not yet. Have you all seen the movie Gladiator, That movie Gladiator. If you remember, I'd love that movie, and I particularly the ending of it. If you remember the ending of Gladiator, after Russell Crowe's died, and the black guy is there, um, he's sort of articulating with the little statue that Russell Crowe had had treated as one of his gods and, and was devoted to. And the black guy says, I will see you again. I, will, and he's, I think he's burying the God, if I remember. I will see you again, I will see you again, but not yet, but not yet. I can't hear those, I can't read the Aeneid without hearing that phrase all the way through it. That's one of the most perfect descriptions of Rome, which is the center of our faith, not yet that our labors have to go on. We have to keep going. No matter how tired we get, no matter how much we fail, it's always just off. So the Rome that Virgil has on his mind is clearly not just like Ithaca, an actual physical home. It will have a physical embodiment. It will be there. They will raise the city. But Virgil knows that the the Rome that is at the center of this vision has a physical location but it means something far more that always. Asks of a person, not yet, not yet, there's more to do. So the whole notion of kleos and the whole notion of nostos, 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 nostos um, homecoming, are radically changed. And we've been seeing the cost of it, and it's not less than everything, that Aeneas has to give up everything to go on. Um, so we've been talking about that again and again, the importance of this transformation, translating the past, carrying it forward. The dying cities, we talked about them. I, um, I don't want to go through them again, but if you'll take out that, if you'll take out the, the uh, sheet, you remember that every one of the cities has um, an element, a principle of um, decay, something that will cause its undoing. Um, Dido's brother killed her husband, Zacchaeus. Troy was destroyed by treachery, by blasphemy. The Greeks Greeks blasphemed the gods. So they, they defeated the city not by an integrity of some virtue, which is the way Homer presents it, but through treachery. Carthage is undone with Dido's suicide. We'll look at that in a minute. The Bleeding Bush episode remember the, the, the person that spoke through the blood of the, of the bush, when Aeneas picked it up, recalled the story of his betrayal. Euthyrodom, we saw, um, was an attempt to duplicate Troy, to simply carry the past forward. It was called the Little Troy, the, the, the tower was there, and we saw that the river was dried up. So Euthrotum is an image of what happens when somebody simply tries to relive the past. The past cannot be duplicated without killing it. Um, we call that the, um, in terms of Eliot's Wasteland, the more modern work, the, the wasteland, the arid, the, 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 the city that dried up. Um, so, we've seen um, all the dying cities. One of them we didn't touch on, but I want to look at it really quickly because it, it's so pointed in what Virgil's doing in the poem. Go page 87 just quickly. Um, this is um, Aeneas' description, remember, of his voyages. And here he comes to the island of the Cyclops, Remember, he's virtually going through the same episodes that he learned from Homer. Page 87. <coughs> <coughs> Sorry. As there, and remember, when Odysseus went to Cyclops Island, the, Homer's description out of curiosity, he wanted to explore the island. Virgil, so aware of the dangers of curiosity, The the curiosity can get you into trouble. Instead of keeping your focus on what you're doing, you allow yourself to get distracted. So you, you come out of your purpose, whatever it is. So he sets out, and they come across this man, middle of 87. With this he took our knees and groveled, kneeling, clinging there. We told him to speak out. Say who he was, born of what blood, what fortune put him in such a panic. And my father after a moment, gave the man his hand to calm him by that touch and sign of mercy. What? Anything like that in the Odyssey? This is his dad, old, quieter, calmer, tries to reassure the stranger. In the end, he put aside his fear and said, I'm Ithacan of Ulysses' company. This is one of Odysseus' <laughs> men from Ithaca. He's Ithaca and he belongs to Odysseus' company. That man, beset by trouble, Achaemenides, I'm called, my father, Adamastris, lived in poverty, so I shipped out for Troy." So um, who is this guy? What's Virgil doing with this? Do we hear anything of this man in the Odyssey? What 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 Virgil's showing us is is that Odysseus left somebody behind. I mean, it's so it, once again, it's it's a critique that he that he just does not Odysseus from Virgil's perspective did not have a great enough sense of the common good of others. So this is another one of the really severe critiques of Homer. This guy doesn't exist in the Odyssey. But but it, it's wonderful to see how writers take the past forward and cr- recreate it, but critiquing it as they go. So this is a pretty serious critique. We talked about the dying cities, all that Odysseus encountered there and all that he is taking on to Rome. So if we begin to put all of this stuff together, we're beginning to have some sense of what Rome is. It's not just this city, it's not this tourist attraction, it's not even in some sense St. Peter's, although it's going to be that and more when we finish this book. It is that place that you go to that asks you to give up everything for something new that the gods will reveal to you. Um, We talked about the underworld in in Dido. I want to end tonight um, by looking closely at at both of those themes. Um, But um, before I do, I want to just briefly um, look at um, 7, 8, and 9. and underline this before we do. um, It it will become clear, if it's not clear yet, how it's so clear Homer takes sexuality seriously. We can't get through that world without looking at sexuality. (coughs) The Trojan War has as its cause an adultery. And the lust that's awakened. In Book 7, Paris is given a chance to give Helen up and stop the war. He won't do it. And Priam, who I think is a great enabler, sanctions that says keep the girl, let the gods decide between us. He, he thinks he's being pious and letting the gods decide, but that war goes on. Paris won't give her give her up. Um, the Odyssey has implicitly all these critiques of sexuality nine into the nine and a half years of is under the influence of women. and. Homer's pretty clear of the, the dangers that women present him in, the possessiveness, um, all that they awaken in man as woman, um, and the struggles that a man faces to try, to try to bring an order to his life. And if you remember, my last words on that, on that, in our talk together was, it, um, until Odysseus learns to make himself lawful, to properly order his own soul, Woman will be nothing more than she is to the suitors; she will be death. Till he learns to order his soul, she will never be what she's been created to be. That's how much it looks forward to Christianity. That's an amazing. Do you remember m- my line on that? Um, remember that in the Odyssey, women are. Um, um, well, let me read this. They are present in conspicuous way in Clytemnestra Helen. To the suitors is an image of feminine beauty and sexuality. Penelope is an overpowering temptation, an object to be used to gratify their lust as well as their cravings for power. To them, as lawless men, she is death. They're all going to die. We're all going to die. To Odysseus, the virtuous man who has learned restraint, she is beautiful, faithful, pious, modest, wise, clever, respected, and loved. She is a trial to him for 20 years. She is helper, temptress, goal. She is finally fulfillment at the very end. Women are temptresses, ends, they are the end for which men move. They are guides, think of Athena, who's a guide to both Achilles. So what we learned from Homer is how intimate the correlation is, the relationship between a man and a woman, and how deep the sexual disorders are after the fall. And I just don't think either poet can say enough about them. The the effects of the fall, these are not Christians. They don't have a sense of the fall that we do, but they're very clear about how deep these disorders go. The whole effort in both books is to restore that relationship between the sexes to help man and woman recover. In Virgil, it seems to me, um, he is even um, darker about the relationship um, between men and women. Um, over and over and over again in Aeneas's travels, he has to avoid things that Odysseus did. He goes ar- around... Um, skill in cryptus. we don't have an episode like the tyrants Odysseus tied himself to the mast so he could hear it he had to know there's that curiosity he had to know Aeneas doesn't do that he doesn't even go to Circe's island at the end after book 6 when he goes on to Italy he passes Circe's island he will not go near her and if you've read closely you know in the stories that we hear when he gets to Italy the dangers of Circe that she presents to in. And I want to come to this curse. Dido curses Aeneas when he leaves. And it's really clear from Virgil's treatment that that curse led to the Punic Wars. Twelve centuries later, Carthage and Rome are killing each other. So neither poet is innocent about the dangers of our sexuality, what are the difficulties it presents to us as human beings, and the importance of getting right with each other, the struggle that we have to go through just one question yeah. this concept of soul I mean is this this is it the first time that it ever really appears is it is it during Homer's time or it, did it exist, this concept exist uh, prior to prior to that I, I honestly I can't answer that what I can say because I don't know enough about um, world religions uh-huh. I, I I have a grasp of Hindu and Buddha and the Tao and things yeah, like more, that in general you know. but but not enough to answer your question. What I do know is that um, most of those religious cultures have some notion of a soul, and it's immortality, yeah. but I don't think it ever gets as finely articulated until this time. That's what, that's what I'm... And, and it's interesting you say to It's going it's to become even more articulated in Plato, who clearly learned a lot. And I'm going to throw this out in a little bit. <coughs> When I, when my closing remarks on this summary, and in fact, let me say it right now. So one, one of the things that we've been looking at here is Aeneas's wanderings and the ordeals that he and his men have had to go through to found the city. One of the, let me come back, one of the last things that they have to do, remember when he leaves Carthage, he goes to perform funeral rites for his father and they have the funeral games. How different that is than the Iliad. Um, And it's there that um, Juno sends one of her nymph goddesses, Iris, down to inflame one of the women, who is grief-stricken with labors, and says, I don't want to go on. And she works all of the women up, and the women burn the ships. Um, And they lose, I think it's four ships they they lose then, and they've lost one already. So they'll go on to Italy with 15 ships. Um, um, And it's after that that he goes to the underworld. So that's the last um, thing and it. And it's a pretty dark figure of women who become exhausted from the labors. That, she says, we've been at it for seven years. We've been wandering for seven years. They don't want to go on. Um, where was I going? Bring me back to your... Oh, so that's... Now, now, after that scene, and as Aeneas enters the underworld and comes out and goes on to Italy, what we see really clearly is that Virgil has left that Greek world behind and I want to give one last I mean one of the beautiful touches that he does with, turn to page um, so it's the first page of book seven, it's page 195 he's just come out of the underworld and now he knows exactly where he's going, he's going on to Italy and. It reads this, Nurse Caeta of Aeneas, in death you too conferred your fame through ages on our coast. Still honored in your last bed as you are, and if this glory matters in the end, your name tells of your grave and great Hesperia. When he had seen Caeta's funeral performed, her mound and Aeneas waited until the sea went down and cleared harbor. So that marks the end of that Greek world. I hope the difference is clear. He's just lost his nurse. What happened to Odysseus's nurse? Anything? She was there to greet him. at Then she watched his. If you remember, when Odysseus he's in he's in disguise and he goes up to Penelope's bedroom and and uh, she good. She recognizes him. The nurse is home. Now, why is Virgil doing this? Is there anything he can take on? I mean, it. The, the, the Aeneid is not for timid souls. Look, I, I'm so proud of you guys. That you're even here. It's amazing to me. The Aeneid is not for timid souls. He keeps saying again and again, give up everything, give up everything. Aeneas, Odysseus had a nurse to go back to. He had a wife to go back to. He had a father to go back to. He had a home to go back to. Look at Aeneas. He has lost his home, his culture, his place, the natural, the seasons, all that made up a part of his life. He lost his wife, first thing, as he was leaving the city. He lost his father on the journey. And now he's left the underworld and he's approaching Italy and he's lost his nurse. Can Virgil be any clearer? And I wanna just stop for a second. I'm not gonna make it. Um, I wanna ask, I've gotta ask this question. What's the difference between raising a son in a Greek world, a son or a daughter? Raising a son or a daughter in a Greek world if you go if, if we take that as a sort of mindset, and raising a son or daughter in Virgil's world what what would be the difference in the kind of child we produced Is that a fair question?: A mm-hmm. Greek one would have a desire for things and a Roman one would have just desire to care for others. Yeah things in one and station of life, caring for other people, making a better world. Anything else? Mm, would it be a comparison between attachments and, just, and, and then attachments? Flesh it out. Flesh it out. Oh, do I have to them? <laughs> <laughs> you said it, I didn't. Come on. Like raising children that are attached to whatever it is, whether it's honor, or duty, or um, Riches, cell phones, etc., cetera, or um, raising children that are comfortable with asceticism or detachment from material. Yeah. It and seems so. to me that's so much at the heart of it. The, 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 we're gonna look at a scene today when Ascanius makes his first kill when Turnus attacks the camp. Mm-hmm. Remember Aeneas has gone to Evander to, to get an ally and and the Trojans are left there and Ascanius is there. This Trojan keeps taunting him and he pulls his bow and kills him. What happened with Tele- Telemachus and his bow just before they fought the suitors? Do you remember? They all tried the bow and none of them could then Odysseus did it. Telemachus did it and was about to string it and yes. to show that he could right. and Odysseus stops him. Stopped. Strings it himself and then Begins the battle. In this book, it's Ascanius strings this bow with this guy who's taunting the Trojans, making fun of them, and kills him. Um, what's the difference between that? Ascanius and Telemachus. Telemachus is a great young man. I think Odysseus, too, but we're in the Iliad world right now. I mean the Aeneid world right now. It seems to me that the, 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 the Latin is far more independent, far more able to do something on his own without being selfish about it. That's not a small thing because we can do things on our own all the time for selfish reasons. We can seem to be very independent and be very selfish. The hero that Virgil's showing us does without all of these things, he's detached, he lets them go and still gives himself for others. It's a very, very different kind of hero in this world. Very, very different kind of children uh, that, that Homer's showing us. God, I wish we could teach this. I wish I wish this were being taught in school. I cannot tell you. I cannot tell you. <laughs> I cannot tell you. For kids to grow up knowing this, just to be aware of it, whether they're getting it from their parents, what a change it would make for their minds. Just to be aware of these things, to know that there's these differences, to see them early on. So what's the difference between the two sons? I I thought Marcy's comment to the point was good, and so is Joan. I can't hear Oh. Um, in the Greek world, people are encouraged to be very individualistic, to stand out for themselves. Like Americans today, we're very, very individualistic. Everything about our culture encourages Individual enterprise, individual success, individual power. Narcissistic? Mm, I, I wouldn't put that on it, but it's certainly, it's certainly going in, there. Yeah, it's point. already and there it's certainly, yeah. in this culture. Yeah, yeah. The, in the Roman world, um, in, young people are raised to be detached, to have a greater sense of others, and to be far more independent in doing something for the good of others not just for their own honor, their individual honor. Very, very different. Very, very different. once, once Catholic, <laughs> I'm going to say. I mean, that's... But how many of us grow up... I mean, I, you, know, I, you know I converted. I, I, how many Catholics grew up aware of this? I'm, I'm not sure that they do, but that's why I'm so glad we're together here. But. Would, you, would you go back, though? Because my parents were much older. But when, when we're talking about this, I would say that's how my father... Was raised, my father was born in uh, 1913. And I would definitely say that they were very um, empowered, I guess, to go and have accomplishments. But it was always for the betterment of the family or the town yeah. or. Yeah. So yeah. I think that when we say America, I think we're probably talking more the last several, you know, maybe last. Couple yeah, years. for sure. I mean, another way to put that broadly is that we are not who we were when we had our founding. I mean, the founding generation of the next century, their whole way of looking at our world was so, the sense of entitlements that's taken over our, our view of ourselves, that what we deserve and what we should get. The people who came here fought in order to get something they didn't have, so they gave their lives up for this, right. this great country. Even the Civil War, if you read Lincoln's speeches, I mean, if you read Lincoln's inaugural addresses and... Two of the Lyceum address, and there's one I can't remember, but so many of his talks go back to that beginning. That was his view of our world. If you read, if you read his Gettysburg in the second inaugural, it's almost as if he's weeping over the fact that this family is killing each other. Same God, you know, worship, and we're killing each other. That He had this view of a greater whole of America, and the new man. That's what's interesting. He uses that in the Lyceum address when he talks about he's addressing a it's an alcoholic group and saying that the ones who should be teaching these groups are former alcoholics because they're the ones who you know, not these self-righteous people who you know yeah. he said that the basis of America was a new man, that that's why we were created to produce a new individual. and his concept of it was much closer to you know what you're describing. It was for the for the founders, you know, when you look at the documents but Um, Okay, Um, I want to do this really quickly, when Aeneas comes to Italy, um, Latinus um, experiences a couple of um, omens. Bees are swarming around this laurel tree, and his daughter Lavinia is suddenly surrounded by light, and he has a soothsayer. Um, read the omens, and he learns then that um, something that he's had hint of before, that his daughter is destined to marry a foreigner. And when Aeneas comes, he thinks that this is the foreigner. The Latins, because they're very ethnically, what we would call racially prejudiced, I mean, so tied within themselves. When Amada, um, Turnus's mother hears that she goes nuts, Turnus becomes furious. Because of these racial identities, there's such a purity in these tribes. Italy at that time is torn by civil wars. Racially di- distinct people are fighting each other. So um, when he comes there, he meets Latinus, King Latinus. The two make a truce, but Alecto, who's this underworld um, fury figure, inspires Amata and um, Turnus to start a war. Turnus marches on. Um, king Latinus for breaking the promise that they had together in the peace. And Latinus' Latinus's response to that is to withdraw because he didn't want to end his life doing battle. How many of you have seen the fellowship of the... the Tolkien's fellowship, the trilogy? If you remember the king who withdrew, I mean, Tolkien, Col- Tolkien knew this stuff cold. I mean, he, was, he knew Homer and Virgil and... If you, if, you, if you read him, you find Virgil everywhere through that. But he, the king retires. He just pulls out. The, the prototype of that is King Latinus here. Um, Aeneas is um, sleeping next to the Tiber River when the, the river god appears to him in a dream and tells him that he will see a sow, this giant sow and it's 30 piglets, and that he's to go to Evander, and um, make an alliance with him. He goes upstream to visit Evander and does make an alliance there. And Evander tells Aeneas that he should go to the um, Etruscans and make alliances with them too. And he tells the story of the Etruscan people uh, whose king was King Zentius. Very, very brutal king. He punished people by tying them together with ropes until they rotted. And the people became so disgusted with him that they they forced him out. Um, and Mezentius will make an alliance with Turnus, but um, at this point Evander is telling Aeneas to to, um, to get the Etruscans on his side before they undertake this battle, because it's going to be it's going to be um, it's going to involve all the the cultures of Italy, basically. Um, a few things just to remember. Um, I want to I look at a couple of these things and then fi- try to finish with um, a couple of passages from Dido and the Underworld. Um, when they first arrived, you remember that they all got off the ships and were on the shore eating with these large leaves. This is on um, page 199. I'm not going to read because I've got to be careful, but just so you have the reverence, 199. They have these large leaves that they use, and Ascanius makes the comment, he says, Look, we're eating on our tables. If you remember, that was the prophecy by Salano, the fury, or the harpy, who said, You will know that you've arrived when you're eating your table. It sounds absurd. Ascanius wasn't aware of that. He was just unconsciously making a comment. But the two worlds suddenly, and this is gonna become a commonplace now, two worlds, several worlds, are gonna be joining from this point on. Strange things are suddenly gonna be coming together everywhere in this world. Aeneas immediately performs a ceremony. He makes a wreath, puts it on, and all of the men gather around, and he says, we are home. We are finally here. I think it's on page, yeah, page 200. He says, we're here. Um, so Turnus goes to war with Latinus. Ascanes is out hunting, you know from the reading, and he kills this deer, who is one of the favorites of the of the daughter of the king's um, herdsman. And that immediately um, rouses the countrymen, the farmers, who who support these people to go to war against these foreigners. So people are at war everywhere at this point. And never I want you to go. never let the crisis go to waste. Well <laughs> not in Virgil's world, sure. Let me I wanna um I want to just point out a couple of things that to me are extraordinary, and, and then I want to just I want to end with um, looking at a couple of passages with Dido on the Underworld, but turn to um, page 231. This is just extraordinary. Um... (coughs) On page 230, um, to Berenice, the god of the river, appears to him in a dream at the bottom of the 230 and says that you will see a sow will be discovered lying on the ground. That will be the place where Ascanius will build a city, will found a city, the city Alba, which means um, white city. And he tells him to go to Evander. Go on over on 232. As Aeneas sets upstream, he sees the sow, and, and it's confirmation after confirmation that this is his home. He has no doubt about it. Middle of the page. A sign to marvel at, snow white in the green woods, snow white as their own litter, lay the sow upon the grassy bank where all could see. Remember the difference between the city icon of Carthage and the city icon here. The city icon of Carthage is that spirited warhorse which means there's something in the human soul disposed to war, to be noble, to always fight, to always be above, to conquer. The the image defining Rome is this giant pig nursing nursing her 30 piglets. So there's something very ordinary and common and ugly and unheroic and nurturing about Rome. This is the city for everybody, not just the nobles. Not those in flight, not the fugitives who've been persecuted, everybody. Um, the Tiber quieted in swollen s- stream and countered its current with still water. It goes on. This is what's sort of remarkable. Once underway, therefore, cheered on, they made good speed upstream. Their tarry hulls with bubbling walls behind slipped through the water, and the waves were awed. The waves were awed. Because they'd never seen a ship before. Now hold on to this because this, this Virgil's striking an entirely new note here. Just hold on to this passage. And the waves were awed, the virgin woods were awed at this new sight, the soldiers' shields that flashed in distant air, the painted ships afloat upon the river, oarsmen out weary, night and day in rowing, past the long dim, shaded by differing trees, and cleft green forests in the mirroring water, at that hour when the fiery sun had climbed to heaven's midpoint, distant still they saw walls, citadel, a few housetops, the town built heavenward by Roman power now, but meager then. This is the first note when Virgil puts together two times separated by centuries. We're we're in this virgin stream, these streams have never seen a boat before, so they're in awe. And he sets this moment against what Rome will be 1,200 years later. So there's the sense of distances in Virgil. We never never get in, in um, Homer. So whatever things mean in this world, we know always they contain distances that we can't see in the immediate moment. I've been saying that that's one of the qualities of the prophetic element of poetry. Um, going over again on page 240, 241. <coughs> when he, um, comes to Palantium, Ev- um, Evander's, I mean, uh, yeah, Evander's son, Pallas, greets him, takes him by the hand, and, and Aeneas tells him that they're of the same lineage. Um, you've got this in your, you should have this in your study guide, but... But, he, but he, he reassures him that, that um, they come from the same line because they go back. So it's one of the ways in which Aeneas represents bringing different bloodlines together. It's one of the qualities that distinguishes Rome as a city. Pallas greets him, introduces him to Evander, his father, and um, they eat, they celebrate. Evander tells him the story of Hercules' defeat of Cacus, who is a monster figure. Half man, half monster. And I hold on to that because I want to end looking at the minotaur in the underworld. The minotaur you remember was half bull, half human in the maze. Caucasus is a figure like that and Hercules came to defeat him. So wherever Aeneas goes, he's going to have to confront the minotaur figure, the beast man and the the wife who wanted to mate with him there's that sexual disorder again, that she was so enamored of the bull that she wanted to mate with him and produce the minotaur. So, I I want to come back to that, but just hold on to that for a second. After Evander tells him the story, he wants to show him the surroundings, and this is what, this is what, um, this is what Virgil describes. To me, it's extraordinary. because this says as much about Rome as anything in the book. Middle of page, 240. These woodland places once were homes of local fawns and nymphs, together with a race of men that came from tree trunks, from hard oak, That's the first idea of evolution. They had no way of settled lives, no arts of life, no skill at yoking oxen gathering. They had no art, no technique. What's at the center of Virgil, because everything Virgil does is, involves art. From oak and boughs and wild game hunted down in that first time out of Olympian heaven, Saturn came here in flight from Jove. This is the place where fugitives came. What is America? It is supposed to be the new Rome. It is the land where fugitives come for, to seek refuge. The first image of that is here. Okay, It wasn't in Greece, it's here. Saturn, a god, After the Olympian battles, took flight and found refuge here. So hold on to that. Saturn came here in flight from Jove in arms, and and exile from a kingdom lost. There's Troy, Aeneas. He brought these unschooled men together from hills where they were scanned, gave them laws, and chose the name of Latium from his latency or safe concealment. So, what Latin means, what Rome means, is latent. There's something hidden there, concealed. It's, that's part of the meaning of Rome. This countryside, in his reign were golden centuries, men of still, so peacefully he ruled. Men tell of still, to gradually a meaner, tarnished age came on with fever of war and lust of game. Then came Essonian and Sassinians and others, it goes on. Put Go down. Page 241 in the middle of the page. Then he showed the wood that Romulus would make a place of refuge. Then the grotto called the Lupercol under the cold crag named in Arcadian fashion. He's already setting that old time, which is undeveloped, just hills, this virgin primitive soil against the current Rome, the Colosseum, buildings. The two are in juxtaposition with each other now. Under the cold crag, named in Arcadian fashion after Lacan pen, and then as well he showed the sacred wood of Argi- Argilitum, Argus's death, and took oath by a telling of a guest, Argus, put to death. From there he led to Ar- Tarpanian site and capital, all golden now, in those days tangled wild with underbrush, but awesome even then. A strangeness there filled country hearts with dread, and made them shiver at the wood and rock. Something's there, it's present. So we get this extraordinary image of this virgin, untarnished, undeveloped wood set against all that it's become with Virgil's Rome, buildings, the Colosseum, all of it. Um, So, just keep, add that to these things that we've been um, using to describe this whole process of transformation and what Rome is. This Rome uh, that has become the center of our faith. Now let me very, very very briefly Um, um, I can't do this. Turn to page 190. This is in the underworld when Aeneas meets his father and I want to make this absolutely clear here. So often modern critics, particularly those in the social sciences, look at the underworld in these ancient works as um, images of the unconscious, because they are in lots of ways. But it's really important to see that even if they're images of the unconscious, and I think they are, they're also meant to be images of an... Of an objective reality. For Virgil and Homer, the soul was immortal. And one of the reasons of going to the dead is to learn from final things, those things we learned about our nature, to help us live our lives. So there's an objective reality to the afterlife. It's not just an image of the, the unconscious, it's objectively real. That's what we see there is what souls made of their lives and take to the next life. That's why it's so differentiated. If you go through Virgil's underworld, it's far more differentiated than Homer's. He's much clearer about, he's much finer in distinguishing the different kinds of soul than in Homer's world. Here, Aeneas meets his father, and his father says in 190 Roman, remember by your strength to rule earth's peoples, for your hearts are to be these to pacify, to impose the rule of law, to spare the conquered, battle down the proud. And Cices paused here as they gazed in awe and added, see there Hermosilus comes and you'll go on. So this is the first time with any kind of concreteness, Aeneas um, once more gets a sense of his calling. This time far more concrete than any, anything before. When he leaves, he leaves through the. Um, which gate does he go through? Do you remember? He, the the, the, uh, w- there's two gates gates of ivory and ga- gates of horn. Which does he go through? Ivory. Ivory. ivory gates, the gates of false dreams. Now, I wanted to go back just briefly. It's, it's really, Virgil's notion of the soul is that um, it's immortal, but it reincarnates. So that the soul returns to the world after a period equivalent to the, whatever its merits were in this life. When Aeneas leaves the underworld, he's learned something about the nature of man and his aims, but he passes out into our world, comes back out into it again through the gates of ivory. False dreams. So it raises a huge question what Virgil is saying about all that he's going to go on to do. Um, So two things that I just want to point out here quickly. One is, there's some question whether Virgil read the Old Testament and Plato, because if you read Plato, you know that Plato, in his, in the Phaedo, makes an argument for the immortality of the soul and believes that the soul is reincarnated. Um, So there's good evidence that he's read Plato, and there's also some suggestion that he's read the Old Testament. Because if you read the Old Testament, and there's evidence for that too, because his whole treatment of his wanderings corresponds to what the Jews did in the desert. Those, that long wandering to try to fulfill Yahweh's will. So in Virgil, we've, we've got this sense of a rich history and a vision behind him that seems to be bringing in philosophy and history and scripture um, that all go into this understanding of what Rome is. I am going to just read one one passage from Dido and then, sorry to rush like this, Um, I I really want to try to leave you with as much as we can before our last class because the last class (laughs) we did and my hope is that you'll carry a lot with you because there's so much going on in this book by the time we get there. Go back to the Dido episode on page um, 120. On page 104 and 5, the bottom 104, um, Mercury comes to Aeneas to scold him and notice the picture of Aeneas He noted well the sword belt the man wore adorned with yellow jasper and the cloak aglow with Tyrian dye upon his shoulder. Gifts of the wealthy queen. Aeneas has become effeminate. He's got jewels on his sword. This is a warrior, or a man who was a warrior. He's become effeminate. He's lost his sense of a calling. Um, He is living a life of virtual self-indulgence. And Mercury says to him, top of the next page. Sorry, let me get it. Is it for you to lay the stones for Carthage's high wall, tame husband that you are, and build their city? Get on. What are you doing here? Aeneas is terrified and goes to Dido and says he has to leave. Um, On page 118, 119, these are the ones I want to leave you with. Um, The the image I'd like you to hold on to is that she curses Aeneas. Um, the, the and image, the imagery in which he does this is meant to, I think, call to mind, for those of us who have any sense of history, the Punic Wars, OK? And something, not even, we get nothing like this in Homer. Absolutely nothing. This is a woman who's been spurned. And by the way, he's going to meet her in the underworld, and, and you know that she snubs him. That's one of the most painful snubs in all of literature. He wants to apologize. She's still holding on to it. She, she cannot forgive him. And he has, he has to carry that wound as he goes forward. I, thought, this is, I mean, just think about what he carried. He cannot let anything, no matter how bad he's been, get in the way of what he's got to do. Page 118. If by necessity that impious wretch must find his haven and come safe to land, if so, Joe's destinies require, and this his end in view must stand, Yet all the same, when heart beset in war by a brave people, forced to go outside his boundaries and torn from elus, let him beg assistance. Let him see the unmerited deaths of those around and with him in accepting peace on unjust terms. Let him not even so enjoy his kingdom or the life he longs for, but fall in battle before his time and lie unburied on the land. (laughs) Can there be anything more angry than that or (laughs) vindictive? She is upset. This I implore. This is my last cry as my last blood flows. Then O my Tyrians, besiege with hate his progeny and all his race to come. Make this your offering to my dust. No love, no pact must between our peoples. Is there any question about what Virgil understands to be the causes of the Punic Wars? The sexual dallying, the taking lightly of... What one's been called to do? I mean, Homer doesn't get close to something like this. So she curses him and lays that on. Uncur- and what we see in the Punic Wars is just that. Go on over. Page 120, the middle of the page. A scream pierced the high chambers. Now through the shocked city, rumor went rioting. She goes up on the pyre that she's built for this purpose. She stabs herself with a sword as she sees his ships take off and sets fire to the pyre. And we see the sacrificial sort of offering on this um, funeral pyre. A scream pierced the high chambers, now through the shock city rumor went rioting as wails and sobs with women's outcry echoed in the palace and heaven's high air gave back the beating din as though all Carthage or old Tyre fell to storming enemies and out of hand flames builded on the roofs of men and gods. Her sister heard and trembling faint with terror, lacerating her face, beating her breast, ran through the crowd to call the dying queen. This is a proleptic view of Carthage being destroyed in the Punic Wars. So once again, there's this, these two vastly separated periods of time brought together. So in Virgil, we're being taught to read. Remember I said that the great theme of the Odyssey was learning how to read and probably everybody laughed. I take that very seriously. That he's teaching us to read differently. That we've got to see that what's in front of us involves so much more than this moment or ten years before that so often it can involve centuries. That's how deep it is. It must be in God's sight. If there's no before and after with God, then centuries have got to somehow be involved in what we take as you know, moment-to-moment things in our life. So he's teaching us an entirely new way of reading um, our experiences. Okay, sorry, sorry to have rushed so much tonight, but can everybody try to come a little bit earlier? Because um, I want to see if we can't get out of here earlier. Um, let this poor young woman go. You all have a good week. Oh, thanks. 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 I think I'm not.